Take your Bibles, Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles with you, if you don't, we'll have it on the screen. Uh, what we do here, if you're visiting, is just preach through the Bible. Nothing fancy, no entertainment. We're just coming together to build the kingdom. And the uh, Word of God is one of God's means, primary means, of building the kingdom in our life. Uh, I want to entitle this message, we're up to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 now. I want to entitle this message, Extravagant Forgiveness, Extravagant Love. Um, this is one of the, my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I, I preached on this, uh, I guess it was about three years ago or so. Uh, and I'll be repeating some of that because it's worth repeating. But it's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, portrait of the kingdom here. Starting with verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner with him, Jesus said yes. He went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Uh, they reclined at the table because back in those days they would have the table just a few inches off the floor and people would, it would be in a U-shape and they'd, they'd lean on one shoulder and eat with the, uh, lean on one elbow and eat with the other hand and their feet would be sticking out so they'd all be kind of, you know, uh, uh, stationed around this, this table and that's what Jesus is doing. A woman in the town who lived a sinful night, life, that's just a polite way of saying she was a prostitute, uh, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. That was a very expensive perfume and a very expensive jar in the first century. Uh, prostitutes tend to be rather poor, and the only reason a prostitute would have such an expensive item is that it was part of the tools of her trade. Uh, they would perfume themselves up as a way of attracting uh, clients. As she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, so she's first standing over his feet, but she's crying, and her, her, her tears start to wet his dirty feet. You've got to remember that they don't have shoes back then. Uh, they had, most had these kind of sandals, but their feet get very dirty. And Jesus' feet, we'll see here later, weren't washed. So the drops, the teardrops are causing little of, packets of mud on Jesus' feet. So she's standing behind him crying. But then she began to wet his feet, uh, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. So she lets her hair down and gets on her knees and begins to mop up his dirty feet, kissing them and, and poured perfume on them. Just amazing. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, he's thinking this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. you got to love this. Jesus answers his thoughts. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, Simon says, no doubt with a certain self-righteous smugness. And maybe now he thinks he's going to get an explanation for why Jesus is allowing this outlandish behavior to go on. But that's not what he gets. Jesus says, two people owed uh, money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other about 50 denarii. A denarii was about a day's wage back then. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon. So you gotta, Jesus is now staring at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, as was customary, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You didn't greet me with a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured this expensive perfume on my feet. And therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little is going to love little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And now all the hoity-toity religious folks have something else to be mad about. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who can even forgive sins? Jesus ignores them and says to the woman, your faith has saved you. The concept there is your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Father, let this word be life and light to us. Build your kingdom in our hearts. Build your kingdom in our minds. Build your kingdom in our lives. Use this word to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before I get into the actual story, I'd like to uh, give kind of a preliminary word. They always say that birds of a feather flock together, right? That's kind of a, birds of a feather flock together. And that comes from a chicken analogy where chickens usually, uh, you know, hang out just with other chickens that, that look like them. Uh, the white chickens, the black chickens, the red chickens, or I don't know how many kind of colored chickens there are, but, but chickens of a feather flock together. Well, people, unfortunately, in some respects, aren't much smarter than chickens. Um, it's true of people. We tend to hang out with people that are like us, that have the same feathers that we do, that think like us, have the same culture, uh, that believe like us, are in the same social strata as us, have the same ethnicity as us. Rich people tend to hang out with other rich people, don't they? Poor people tend to hang out with other poor people. Uh, white, most white folks hang out with mostly white folks, and, and, and many black folks just hang out with, with other black folks, and so it is for all the ethnic groups, and so it is for all tribal affiliations. You don't find a lot of crossing going on. Uh, you know, Donald Trump's of the world don't usually hang out in uh, inner city street corners, you know, rapping with kids. It just doesn't happen very often. Uh, James Dobson isn't going to kick it back with, with any of the folks from the gay pride parade anytime in the near future. Uh, the lines just don't get crossed like that. Dwayne would be in that crowd, but I don't think James Dobson's going to be. Now, he, here's, the, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't fit that mold at all. We saw just a little bit ago in chapter 5 how this tax collector, and they were the scum of the earth, if there was any scum of the earth back then, but he's a very wealthy scum of the earth, so he throws his big feast and he invites Jesus because he's become a follower of Jesus, and Jesus goes. And then you've got the prostitutes, it says, are there. Other sinners are there. You've got uh, Matthew, who's the tax collector, and other tax collectors, but you've also got Simon and his friends, and they're zealots. They're the political revolutionaries. They spend their spare time assassinating tax collectors. Interesting party. And uh, uh, you, you've, you've got the rich there, you've got the poor there, and then you've got just the ordinary Jewish fishermen there that Jesus has called, like Peter. You've got a very, very diverse crowd. Where Jesus is, people who normally don't associate, associate. He, 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 he's like a walking bridge. He, he connects people together. And now we're finding, this is the most remarkable thing, that he gets invited to a party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the hoity-toity religious folks of the first century. Everyone looks up to them. And Jesus goes to this party. A Pharisee would never be got dead with any of the people that were at that previous party. But here Jesus goes there, and he seems very relaxed, very much at home. This guy was versatile. He seemed to be comfortable hanging out with people of widely disparate social uh, strata, widely different lifestyles. He just, like Dwayne here, hung with people. Simon didn't invite him over there to, to be his friend. In fact, I think it's clear from this passage that Simon was was suspicious of Jesus. This was going to be an interrogation. But Jesus nonetheless, uh, nonetheless accepts the invitation, and he's there. 
Now remember, the kingdom of God always looks like Jesus. Our one job in life is to imitate Jesus. Be imitators of God, Paul says in Ephesians 5.1. The kingdom has come insofar as it looks like Jesus. So if Jesus had this kind of radical inclusivity, whereby he was a walking bridge bringing people together and hung out with all sorts of different kinds of people, what does that say about us? We individually and collectively are to be a radically inclusive people. Now, the norm, the norm in the fallen world is to not do that. Everybody hangs out with their own little comfort zone. We all like our little tribes. We all feel comfortable in our tribes. And often we look at other tribes, other social groups, other lifestyles out of the lens of our own tribe, and that's why we're so judgmental. But see, to follow Jesus, to follow his kingdom, is to buck that norm, to have a new normal. The normal of the kingdom is to be non-tribal and to be a person who intentionally is radically inclusive. This is actually central to the kingdom. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to this. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And again, the tax collectors are just those that the crowd he's talking to would identify as the lowest of the low. So he says, to love your loved ones, there's nothing kingdom about that. That's just what people do. Even the tax collectors that you all despise, they do that. Um, but what is kingdom is when you love those who aren't your loved ones. And that includes loving your enemies, but it also includes people that just aren't in your circle. You love people that you ordinarily wouldn't love. You intentionally go outside of your comfort zone and love people uh, that wouldn't be part of your circle in the normal fallen world. That's kingdom. And then he goes on to say this. And if you, only greet, if you greet only pe- only your own people, your own tribe, those familiar with you, if you only greet them, what are you doing more than others? Even pagans do that. If you just say hi, and if you just welcome, and if you just hug, and just embrace people who are familiar to you, that's normal in the fallen world. That's comfortable. But that's not kingdom. That's just what people do. Uh, even the pagans do that. What's uniquely kingdom is when you intentionally go out of your way to greet people that you don't know. Greet people that maybe don't look like you, that that come from a different social network, a different ethnicity, and you make them feel welcome. The concept of greeting here is not just a high, but a welcoming and embracing and acceptance. So here you have it, the command of Jesus, that we are called to be outrageously friendly, friendly, not trendy or friendy, friendly. Where hospitality is at the core of the gospel. We're to be intentional about being inclusive. We're to be intentional about breaking down walls. We're to be intentional about crossing ethnic and socioeconomic lines. We're to be intentional about who we greet, who we say hi to, who we welcome, who we embrace. And if we're kingdom insofar and only insofar as we go outside of the norm of this fallen world. We're to live lives that are intentional uh, uh, about embracing diversity and, and, and uh, being inclusive. We're to be intentional about who we invite over for dinner, for example. Once in a while, we should invite people that normally wouldn't be invited to dinners or at least wouldn't be invited by us to dinners. Jesus tells uh, teachings that gives us teachings about that in Luke chapter 14. We're to go on the highways and byways and invite strangers over for dinner. We're to be intentional about where we live. Live on purpose. Live where God wants you to live. We're to be intentional about where we shop and where we get our coffee and where we cut our hair and and be intentional about meeting neighbors and making people feel welcome. And the place to start, folks, is right here. Because we can't do it here. We certainly ain't going to do it out there. And that's why uh, we've, uh, I'm asking you to consider this service to be 15 minutes longer than the, our time in the sanctuary. 
And the next 15 minutes, the, the last 15 minutes is spent out in the gathering area. And let's practice Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Greet people that aren't part of your tribe. Uh, greet people that you don't ordinarily greet. Now, you'd be friendly to the people that, you know, you're, you're friends too. But I'm saying let's be intentional about meeting people, welcoming people. We, would, we, we are kingdom insofar as we would be known as being this outrageously friendly church. Uh, now, that may make some people uncomfortable, but see, the kingdom happens only when we buck the comfort zone, amen? And, and that's what the kingdom's all about. And so I encourage you to spend 15 minutes or more afterwards meeting people, greeting people, talking with people, asking questions about people, getting to know people, maybe inviting some out for lunch afterwards. Who knows what would happen, but just be open about that. In Jesus' name, amen. That was my preliminary word. Now I'll start preaching. Here it. Jesus finds himself at this party. He's, a, he's, he's part of the high society of religious hoity-toities. It would be a great honor to be invited to this uh, party. And here's a chance for Jesus to really make inroads and in getting in on the in crowd. And typically, Jesus blows it magnificently. But he's invited over to this high society group. They're sitting around this U-shaped table, leaning in, eating with, uh, leaning on one elbow, eating with the other hand. Their feet are sticking out. And in breaks this woman. No doubt Simon had a, a menu of topics to be discussed at this hoity-toity party. Uh, but this woman now is going to interrupt the whole thing. Everyone knows she's a prostitute. She's the town prostitute. Simon certainly knew she was a prostitute. This prostitute comes in, and first she, she stands behind Jesus, cries, his, her, her tears wet his feet. Then she kneels down, begins to kiss his feet, begins to wash his feet with her hair. And then anoints his dirty, smelly feet with this expensive perfume. And I can't possibly exaggerate how awkward this would be. Uh, at this hoity-toity party for this woman of ill... A decent Jewish man wouldn't make eye contact with any woman out in society other than his wife. Certainly not with, uh, make eye contact uh, with a prostitute. Certainly would never touch a prostitute, never talk to a prostitute, uh, let alone let the prostitute touch you. You'd never invite her into your house, and you'd never go into your house. That would make your house defiled. And here Simon is, and the rest of his hoity-toity friends, looking at Jesus as this prostitute is massaging his feet and kissing his feet. It would have uh, an almost sensual feel to it. In fact, I think it certainly would have a sensual feel, feel to it. For her to wash his feet, she'd have to let down her hair. And that was considered very loose in the first century. Her long, flowing hair. Now, she would probably let that down in order to attract clients, and, and, and this could be interpreted this way, but she lets down this hair and starts to wipe his feet. She's kissing his feet, massaging his feet, and now she's using the tools of her trade this perfume to anoint his feet, it could look a little bit erotic, a little bit uh, sensual, and it would be a scandal, an absolute scandal. And the Pharisees would be looking at this with absolute disgust, but Jesus just lets it go on. He doesn't say a word about it. It's almost comical. I get a picture of like a Monty Python movie or something where they're talking about, hmm, what's the right theology about this passage or that passage or should we pay taxes or Jesus, what's your view? And Jesus is just talking away and here this woman comes in, starts crying, kneels at his feet, starts washing his feet and he's still talking about the theology of taxes and the uniqueness of the kingdom or, or what have you. It's just positively bizarre, but Jesus lets it go on. Why did Jesus have a different perception of this woman than the Pharisees? I want to ask that question. Because we're to have the perception that Jesus has, not the Pharisees. What did Jesus know about this woman? What was Jesus' frame of reference that made his perception of this woman so different? Jesus looked at this woman through eyes of love, 
that enabled him to see something the Pharisees couldn't see as they're looking at her with the eyes of their religious judgment. Among other things, what Jesus would know and what we all know if we look at people through the eyes of love is that there's a story behind this. There's always a story. There's always, as I like to say, there's always a prequel. And it's important to remember the prequel. Luke doesn't tell us anything about this woman's life before this episode. But everyone's got a prequel. A story which, if you saw it, would at least shed light on what's going on in the present. Um, when I was out in New York last, last year, uh, some friends and I went to a Broadway play uh, called Wicked. In fact, I, I hear it's, it's showing in the Twin Cities here. It's a marvelous play. It, it, it uh, uh, gives the, it's the prequel to The Wizard of Oz. And it gives the story of the Wicked Witch before she became the Wicked Witch. And it asks the question, how did she become this mean, ugly, green uh, wicked witch. And it's, it's brilliant. And I don't want to give the story away, but I'll tell you this. It's got something to do with being green. <laughs> uh, you know, being born in the world green when no one else is green could be a little bit awkward. And, and what's it like growing up green? And, and what's it like falling in love with somebody, but they don't love you because you're green? They fall in love with your friend who, who's white. And, and uh, you just don't fit in. You don't get invited to the parties. You, you, opportunities, you're the wrong color. Some, some folks here know what, what, what it's like to, to be in this category. You're the wrong color, so you get passed up for the job. You get passed up for the promotion. You don't get invited to certain parties, and, and you get ostracized. You get alienated. And that can make a person bitter, and maybe, just maybe, that has something to do with why she became the Wicked Witch of the West. No one just wakes up and says, hey, I think I'll be mean and nasty today. No, there's, there's a prequel, a story that sheds light on this. And I'm telling you, about, now I, I'm, a, I'm a sentimental kind of guy. I, 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 I didn't cry at all from about the age of seven to the age of 20. And I've been making up for lost time ever since. So I cry at everything. And I cried at this play because it was just beautiful. You know, you grow up. I grew up hating the Wicked Witch of the West. I saw that movie, The, the, the Wizard of Oz, so many times. And I, and I just grew up with this, oh, she's so mean and demonic and nasty and ew, scary. And this just did a, this turn on me. It's like, now I feel love for her. I love the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> I hope she gets saved. I, I'm going to pray for the Wicked Witch of the West. Ah, I'll get you, my sweetie. <laughs> no, poor lady, she's trapped. <laughs> so why did this woman become a prostitute? You know, little Jewish girls don't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I think I'm going to be a hooker for an occupation. That's not how it works. This, this, this... This lady, when she was 8, 10 years old, she had the same dreams that every other Jewish girl would have in the first century. She wants to meet Prince Charming, or she hopes she at least gets wedded to Prince Charming because the marriages were arranged back in those days. And she wants to have a nice family and, and to live happily ever after. That's, that's what Jewish girls want. She had dreams. She had hopes. She had plans. What happened to them? How did she end up in this sorry situation, being this prostitute? Maybe, just maybe, she was a widow. We mentioned this several weeks ago, how in the first century there aren't safety nets for women whose husbands die unless there's someone else to support them. Uh, your options are very, very limited. Maybe she had debts to pay to some Roman guard who lent her money, probably knowing she couldn't pay it back. And then she faces either imprisonment, and if she has any kids out of wedlock, uh, then they would be imprisoned as well, or she has to go into uh, this, uh, this occupation. We, we don't know. Uh, what happened there. Maybe just possibly she was sold as a prostitute as a young child. That happens sometimes in the world today, and it happened back in the ancient world, where a whole family is in debt to a very nasty creditor who is going to put the whole family in prison unless something is done. 
And so one of the kids is sold into prostitution to save the rest of the family. See, desperate people do desperate things. And it's the luxury of the wealthy to sit back and judge them for doing it. Uh, but this woman's situation was desperate. I don't know how it happened, but I do know this. At some point, the dream was gone. The Prince Charming was gone. The hopes and the plans were gone. She finds herself selling her body to smelly, obscene men who pay her to do whatever they want to do with her, using her like a piece of meat and throwing her away as a used handkerchief. And she lives her life with judgment on her. When she walks down the street, all the decent people walk on the other side of the street. She lives a life that's lonely and largely hopeless because they don't have retirement funds for prostitutes in the first century. And at some point, your body is not quite as sellable as it used to be. And she has no idea what she's going to do about that. What happened, we don't know, but we can imagine a prequel. What I do know is that at some point, she met Jesus. Some people suppose that this is the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8. And that's possible, although the woman in chapter 8 was, was accused of adultery, and that wouldn't be the sin of a prostitute. Her sin would be fornication. Um, and, and so I, I don't think that, that, that this is the same woman. But we do know that wherever Jesus went, prostitutes followed him. He had this... The sinless holiness that attracted rather than repelled sinners. It's the kind of holiness we're supposed to have. It attracted sinners. And uh, uh, we, we read in, in Luke chapter 5 how they had this party and there was these prostitutes all hanging out. And I can just imagine her being one of those prostitutes at that party. I can imagine her going to this party. You know, she gets invited. Uh, a friend maybe had heard about Jesus and invites her and she doesn't know what's going on. But she gets free food, free wine, and maybe she's going to pick up some business that night. And so maybe she comes to this party dressed in her prostitute garb, going to do her thing. It's going to be a money-making night. And so she spends a little bit of time flirting with clientele, kind of checking out the crowd, kind of working the crowd, seeing what's up. And at some point, I can just see her maybe noticing this other kind of guy in the corner talking to some friends, maybe some of her, friend, her, her prostitute friends. And so she goes over and sits down next to Jesus with her glass of wine, just going to spend a minute or two and then move on. But immediately, she senses something different about this guy. She doesn't have any, any inclination to try to make him, to try to flirt with him, to try to lure him. It just doesn't seem appropriate. Something about the way he talks, something about the way he looks at people is different. And then, at some point, Jesus turns and makes eye contact with her. And this man looks at her and sees her. And he sees not just a sex toy for him to have pleasure with, he sees her, and, and she hasn't had a guy look at her like that maybe for five, ten years. She sees her, a person. There's a difference. You can tell the way a person looks at you. In fact, this man, when he looks in, at you, he looks into you. And there's something piercing and comforting and loving and accepting about this man's eyes. And she has never seen that before, and it captivates her. At first, it's kind of a weird curiosity. But then it begins to just define the moment for her. And she becomes enraptured with Jesus. And I can see Jesus at some point talking to her. And now as he's doing this, the rest of the party just fades in the background. She's encaptured in this moment. And Jesus at some point just grabs her shoulders tenderly and says, You have no idea how much you mean to your heavenly Father. You are precious in his sight. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And this woman, that was just, she's just blown away by that. And then he begins to talk to her about her life, perhaps like he did to the woman at the well, killing her softly with his song, telling her whole life with his words. And at some point she breaks down and she just comes undone uh, and, and confesses it all. And then I can imagine Jesus saying to her, 
your sins are forgiven. Your father loves you. The slate is wiped clean. You're a new woman. And for the first time in her life, she begins to feel the dream again. She begins to feel like a woman, for the, maybe, maybe for the first time in years. She begins to feel like a, like a human being rather than just a hooker. She begins to feel like a virgin. She feels innocent. She feels pure. She feels like a child. She gets in touch with a life that had died long ago inside of her. And she goes home from that party completely changed. Her world's been turned upside down. Her head is spinning. There's a joy that there's a confusion, but it's a joyful confusion. Her life is forever changed. And we're not told how she did life after that. Uh, we're not given the details. But I do know her life was forever changed. And maybe it was several weeks later where she hears that, that this Jesus is coming to her town. He's coming to the, a party that Simon is throwing. And everybody knows who, the, who the, the chief Pharisee in the town is. They all look up to him. He's coming to the household of Simon. And something inside of this woman goes off like an like a, like a alarm clock that says, I've got to meet him. I've got to see him. I've got to tell him how he's changed my life. I've got to make kind of, I've got to somehow express to him what he means to me. I, I'm alive again. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I've just got to tell him what he means to me. I've got to somehow express it. So she looks around the room, and she hears that he's coming to town today. So she looks around the room. What can I possibly offer him? And the only thing she's got of any worth is the tools of her trade, this, this, this alabaster jar of perfume. So she grabs it. She doesn't know what she's going to do with it. She, she doesn't have a plan. This isn't prescripted. And she races to this Pharisee's house. And she knows when she walks in those doors, she's not invited here. She knows she's going to be judged. She knows she's walking into the lion's den. She knows she's going to be condemned. In fact, these people have the right to put her to death for what she does. And she doesn't care. She has got to meet Jesus and express to him what he means to her. So she barges into the party. It's just getting started. Jesus says, from the beginning, she's been wiping uh, my, my feet. So as the party is just starting to happen, she barges in with her jar of perfume, and she sees Jesus laying there. His feet are, are out. She doesn't have a script or a plan, but she sees he's got dirty feet. I've got some perfume. I, I, I have to do something. So she walks up behind him at his feet, and now she's just overwhelmed with emotions. She's just overwhelmed. So she begins to cry. And then her, feet, her, her, her tears form mud uh, on his feet. And so she lets her hair down and kneels at his feet and begins to wash his feet with her hair. And she doesn't know what else to do except kiss. She's done that a lot. So she starts to kiss his feet just to say thank you. And then she notices, she remembers she's got this alabaster jar of perfume and here's something to do. His feet smell and this smells good. So I'll anoint his feet with this oil. And I can see her as she's doing this, thinking to herself, maybe saying a prayer of sorts. I love you. I've been loved by so many men, quote-unquote, loved by so many men, but you're the only one who's ever loved me. And I've been, quote-unquote, known by so many men, but you're the only one who's ever really known me. You, you gave me worth. You gave me value. You helped me come alive. You saved me. And I, I now want to give you everything I've got. And I don't have much, but I've got my hair that I used to use to lure clients with. And I want you to have my hair. And, and I know how to kiss, so I want you to have my kisses. And I've got this jar of perfume, and I want you to have this jar of perfume. What she's doing is worshiping. She's, she's going into extravagant, uh, reckless, abandoned worship of Jesus Christ. And this is who Jesus sees, the woman and the story and the present moment. 
When he looks at her, he sees a radiant creation of God. He sees uh, an innocent child that lost her way and that got chewed up and spit out in this world. But he also sees a woman who's coming alive again, a woman who's discovering what it is to live under the reign of God, the kingdom of God. He sees a woman who's been extravagantly forgiven and therefore is extravagantly loving and worshiping him. And maybe it is embarrassing right now. Maybe it's really awkward right now. Maybe it's scandalous right now. Maybe this looks a little bit erotic and a little bit sensual. But Jesus knows that this is done with purity and innocence. And he doesn't care and neither does she. Because this woman right now is the most important jewel in the universe. And what she's doing is the most beautiful act in the universe. And Jesus is not going to stop that for anything. The Pharisees and the religious folks can look on it in judgment if they want. But Jesus isn't going to stop it. Jesus sees nothing but pure beauty, kingdom beauty, with what is going on right now. But see, Simon, Simon has caught this disease called religion. And he looks at this woman through the eyes of his religion, through the eyes of his religious judgment. And what he sees is not anything beautiful. In fact, what he sees is not really a woman at all. What he sees is a problem. What he sees is an issue. What he sees is the reason why society is in disarray. What he sees is someone who's undermining family values. What he sees is something that he's called to fix and solve. What he sees is someone that he needs to take a stand against. And what he sees in Jesus is a compromiser. Because Jesus isn't standing up for truth and righteousness in the Jerusalem way. He's not taking a hard stand. What Simon is seeing here is is, is a potential scandal to his own reputation. And so right now, undoubtedly, we need to invoke the law and cast this woman out and stone her just to let everybody in the town know that they didn't invite this this prostitute to their house. They would never do that. And they're going to take a strong stand against sin. So what Jesus is is a compromiser. He's light on sin. That's what Simon sees. He sees something ugly because he's looking with very ugly eyes. And so Jesus, out of love, he loves Simon. And out of love, he wants to jar him if he can. Shake him up. Say, wake up. Try to get him out of his religious judgment. So he tells him this parable. Jesus is a genius at this. And the parable is simply this. The point is that those who are forgiven much, love much. And those who think they're forgiven little, love very, very little. Then he turns the table on Simon in the most ingenious way. He says this, Simon... Here this woman is, you know, she's expressing extravagant love because of her extravagant worship. But Simon, when I came into this house, you didn't, you didn't wash my feet like is customary. Undoubtedly, it's because Simon didn't want to get too friendly with Jesus to let his, his religious buddies know that he's not condoning Jesus. No, this is an interrogation here. So he doesn't do the ordinary customary friendly stuff. He doesn't, offer, he doesn't wash Jesus' feet. He doesn't even give Jesus water to wash his own feet. But Jesus says, this woman has just been washing my feet with her tears. And when I came in, you didn't greet me with a friendly kiss like you're supposed to, but this woman's been kissing my feet from the moment she came in here. And you didn't anoint my head uh, as it was customary to freshen a person up, Uh, but this woman's been anointing my, my dirty, smelly feet with this expensive perfume. And see, the point is this. Her extravagant behavior reflects an extravagant love that flows out of an extravagant experience of forgiveness. But Simon, your cold behavior reflects... No love, because you don't think you need to be forgiven, do you? You actually have the audacity to think that you need to be forgiven less than this prostitute. And see, that's your bondage, Simon. That's your prison. It's why this woman now is entering into the kingdom, the dome in which God is king. But you, Simon, are far away. And what Jesus is trying to do there is shake Simon up to wake him out of his religiosity, to free him to live in the kingdom. 
the point we need to take home from this is this. The more you know you need to be forgiven, the closer you are to the kingdom. The less you think you need to be forgiven, the farther you are from the kingdom. The more you know you need to be forgiven, the more you love. And so the more you give of yourself extravagantly to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the less you think you need to be forgiven, the less you're going to love. So the less of yourself you're going to give to the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the farther you are from the kingdom. The only safe posture to have in relationship with God is to identify with the prostitute. And know that that is you and that is me. The most dangerous spot to be in in relationship with God is to be in the position of the Pharisee where you think that because of the rightness of your beliefs and the rightness of your behavior, in contrast to the wrongness of the prostitute, you can stand before God with confidence. We begin to enter the kingdom when we identify with the prostitute and are freed from the Pharisee. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before you. The only safe spot is to know that you are a sinner like the prostitute in need of forgiveness. We begin to enter the kingdom when we know that we're sinners as much as anybody else. And when we're freed from our self-righteousness. We, we, we begin to enter the kingdom when we're freed from the need to get life from the rightness of our beliefs and the rightness of our behavior. We're freed to enter in the kingdom when, when, we, when we know that the only thing we have to stand on before God is his character towards us, his love towards us, his extravagant forgiveness for us. We begin to enter the kingdom when we experience that extravagant forgiveness and begin to live in extravagant love and make our lives an extravagant act of worship before God. When we enter into reckless abandon, as we ascribe worth to God in gratitude for what he's done for us. We begin to enter the kingdom when we know that we are weak, but by God's grace, we're at least strong enough to be held by him. We enter the kingdom when we know that we're sinful, but we accept and receive and stand in God's extravagant forgiveness. We enter the kingdom when we know that though we are poor, we are made rich by God's extravagant grace. And we enter the kingdom as we take what little we have, our hair, our kisses, our tears, and our alabaster jars, and we pour them out recklessly in service to God. That is the kingdom of God. God reigns insofar as we are recklessly poured out in service to him. And that happens as a consequence of our knowing that we've been extravagantly forgiven. And we, we are freed from needing to compare or contrast ourselves with anybody. But rather, we, we say with Paul, I am the worst of sinners. Society may put you way up towards the top and the prostitute way down towards the bottom, but to God, there is no top or bottom. They're simply people who need grace. And you and I need it as much as anybody could ever need it in all of history. That is the kingdom of God. So the question I want us to end with is this. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Do I really know that I'm in no position to look down on anybody, but that I have had an infinite debt that has been forgiven. And therefore, I have infinite gratitude for being forgiven. Have I been freed to know that I stand before God simply by his grace? Have I been freed to look at other people, all other people, no ifs, no ands, nor buts, the way Jesus looked at this prostitute? And rather than seeing judgment and, and contrasting stuff that, that, that I think I'm better than, I, I, I see the beauty of a, of a God-created human being that Jesus died for. And if I need to, I imagine a prequel to explain some of their present behavior. That is the kingdom of God. Would you close your eyes? I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to seal whatever part of this message we need to have sealed in our life. Some here need to really accept that you've been forgiven. 
Because you have been the prostitute. You have been the meth addict. You have been the person maybe that's done a lot of destructive stuff that society would, would, would put you on the bottom of the social scale for. But can you accept, truly accept, that it's clean, that it's wiped clean, as it was for the prostitute? Others of us here, the Holy Spirit will show us that we are to some degree infected with the disease, the Pharisee disease. Let the Holy Spirit bring that to your awareness and just let it go and identify it with the prostitute. Let the Holy Spirit work in your life as, as uh, we, for three minutes here or so, listen to this song that was written about the woman that we just preached on in Luke chapter 7. From glass alabaster she poured out the depths of her soul. team to come up and stand at the front. If you have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, if you want to spend some time letting the Holy Spirit work in your life, I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to spend 15 minutes or so out greeting people, obeying Matthew chapter 5 verse 48. Please pick up your kids first before you do that if you have kids in the kids station. Let me close with this prayer. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help all of us be held. And know that the only thing we have to stand on is that we're strong enough to stand in your love. Which means that we're weak, but you can make us strong. Father, help us to receive the beauty and the transforming power of your extravagant forgiveness. Free us from our addiction to judgment. 
be the one and only source of our life and help us to live as extravagant lovers who live pouring out our lives for you and for other people in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build a kingdom. The altar is open. Come forward.